Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on acknowledging who is paying for the wedding on the invitation. Whether or not RSVPs are a thing of the past. New houses that are full of stuff from previous residents. And a sample script for a cancelled wedding. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining members, our question of the week is about if spouses should always be invited to. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript on butter. Mmm, all that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Sanning. Because we, we've been hitting it this week. We have been going. I mean, what is it that you always say? Like, hit, grab, and dig, or dig, hit, and grab, some order like that? <laughs> hit, grab, and dig, as if I ever played football. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I didn't even know it was a football reference. But I feel like we've been on it. We have a new deadline from our publisher. We've gotten our first page passes from them, which is where we actually see the book laid out. If you want to go check out our Instagram, I posted a picture of it yesterday. This is for me, cousin, my favorite part of the book process is because you're actually seeing the book fully laid out. You might have placeholders for illustrations. You might have illustrations in there, depending on where you are in the process. We don't have our illustrations yet, but you really get a sense for all the design ideas that you've talked about and coordinated with the designer Lizzie Allen on. And now we're seeing them in practice with our work and our words. And I also love it because you and I are sitting down together over the phone, reading the book out loud to one another. And it's it's so fun. It's it's fun to hear each other read lines that I know we each the other person wrote. You know what I mean? I I'm like, oh, that is so a damn line right there. Oh, I remember that edit. I remember going through that. <laughs> or, oh, this section, man, we must have done this section five times. Oh my god, eh, came out okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I see why we kept going on this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's very fun to be in this position where you're a little bit more removed. You're still. Feeling like the work is pretty precious to you because this is a pretty precious book to us, but it feels like you can both criticize it and just fall in love with it. There were parts of the first section of the book where we talk about consideration, respect and honesty where I just, I, I felt so grateful that we had put in the work that we had put in on it because it felt so good to read it, you know? And like even little things like you'd, you'd read one line or I'd read one line, whoever's reading and you would just hear it. You'd hear that that was a great sentence, you know? And you just take a second, you're like, Oh, that's a great sentence. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's it's a delight. It's it really is delightful, even though it has a deadline and it's like we got to get it back. And this is really our last chance to fix anything that's incorrect. So it's a it's 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 pressured. <laughs> it's all of those things. It it evokes for me these memories of your mother who would mm-hmm. tote around this <laughs> this early treatment. And you physically mark it up, pencil, you know, different people, different colored pens, or oftentimes there's a tabs, you know, you turn post-it notes notes. into tabs. Yeah. (laughs) And I just have these, these memories of that book. And it was, you know, you have to physically carry it around. So, you know, Trisha would come into the office with that thing under her arm and it would lay out on the desk. And it, it always seemed so daunting to me being a step removed from the process. It felt like there was just so much being tracked and kept track of. And because it all had a physical location, there was a certain amount of care that you took with just that, that copy that had all of the edits on it because it was, it was everything. It had all the information that was being assembled, all of the the responses of the different authors that were going back to the publisher one last time. But it was so real, so physical, so tangible that it it created a real or or gave me a real impression that there was work going on. And it's what I associate with writing a book in many ways. Totally. There's and I can remember those meetings with my mom, Trisha, where like, for instance, I remember in the 19th edition, I was responsible. Maybe it was the 18th edition. One of the two, I was responsible for bringing the roommates element to it. And when she was ready to tackle that, you'd get called into the conference area and we'd be at the table together and she would go through everything with you and she'd make notes and the, and she was so great about taking everybody's comments, you know, and, and putting yeah. them in and assessing them and, and not being terribly judgy about it. But it was that feeling of Trisha would call you in and, and you would get your time with her and that giant manuscript. And it was, it was kind of cool. You mentioned all the tabs and everything, and I feel very much so like my mother right now because I there bet. are different tabs. And, and between Dan and I, we only have to send back one version of this, so I'm doing all the marking up. And Dan is going to keep his version for our references <laughs> and our archives. So it's filled with tabs, and it's like every little correction, whether it's a comma missing here or it's a big, oops, this actually got transferred to the wrong section of the book. We need to put it over here. All of those are marked and they have a little tab that coordinates, corresponds to them, excuse me. And then those all go horizontally off the pages and vertically are the things that I have to deal with. So if there's something that's still really unresolved that we need like a meeting with the editor to talk about, like how, how, how does this read? Is this the most current language for this? That kind of thing, which are mostly things we've already dealt with, but this is our last chance. And so we want to get it right. And so there's a lot of things we question in this one. Or we had, um, I think one of the ones from Wednesday, Dan, was did Mrs. Three and One really show up in the etiquette books in 1927 in the second edition of the book? And we so both I, know that, but do we but know do we it? Know it? it? Like, where's our source for it? You know? And so I feel like a co- college kid, you know, back to writing papers and getting sources and things. But that was a vertical tab we got to remove because we went and double checked and f- and found the right answer in the in the Claridge biography and and were able to confirm it. And so it's kind of fun to see those those remove. Um, and it's it, it, it's just delightful. I really love being back in the book with you because it's a it's a, been a very our mornings where we have worked on it together. I have I have just thoroughly enjoyed them this week. I've really, really been jazzed about it. <laughs> 
Well, we've got a few more ahead of us, so that's so we good do. to we hear. Do. We do. <laughs> got about another week and a half to go. <laughs> well, speaking of all that we have ahead of us, mm-hmm. we have some questions ahead of us, Lizzie Post. We do. We do. Shall we get to them? Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or reach us on social media. On Twitter, we're at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media posts so that we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question this week is about a stationer snag. Dear Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for years and years of listening to your podcast. I've been in so many different states of my life as I listen, and now I have a wedding etiquette question. Ooh. My fiancé's parents, let's call them Mr. and Mrs. Jack Roberts, have extremely generously offered to pay for my wedding to their son. I'm a woman, my fiancé is a man. My parents will be paying for the invitations and the rehearsal dinner. I asked the stationary designer to put my fiancé's parents at the top of the invitation to acknowledge that they're paying. For example, Mr. and Mrs. Jack Roberts, in parentheses, invite you to the wedding of their son, groom and bride, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Sam Johnson. If you're wondering why it says and, that's because it's a Jewish wedding invitation where we write and instead of to. Here's the problem. The stationery designer doesn't feel comfortable putting the groom's parents' names at the top because it's jarring and calls attention to itself. But I don't know what to do. 
because they are truly paying for almost everything, and I wonder why my fiancé's gender would make that uncomfortable for people. She sent us proofs recently with my parents named first, then me, then my fiancé, then son of his parents. Should I kindly insist that we put my fiancé's parents' names first? Should we put my parents first as the designer prefers, though their contribution is much smaller? I think it's important to know that all four parents are very gracious about this situation, and nobody has insisted on going first. My parents are the ones pushing to have his parents named first, as a salute to their generosity. What would you do? And also, do you think it's a real concern that a partner's gender would make it uncomfortable for guests to see that their parents are paying? Thanks so much for your time. Signed, who's on first? (laughs) I like that. Who's on first? Very clever. Very clever. I also wanted to just quickly point out that even though I I grew up Catholic, I really always loved the Jewish wording on the invitation of and because it felt like, like such a union as opposed to one person is being married to another. I, I love the construct using the word and. And so that's that's always been a, a favorite of mine <laughs> that I hope would branch out be, beyond the religious barriers. But I really appreciate so much about what who's on what who's on first has told us about. Oh, boy, here we go. I know. Right. Because I think it is incredibly important that the parents are very gracious about this situation, because sometimes that's not always the case. Often we get the opposite. You know, oh, my gosh, my parents contributed. But, you know, the bride's parents are very. Um, traditionalists, and they think only the bride's parents should be hosted. We get a lot of that, and it's really refreshing to hear the other side of, oh my gosh, the other set of parents has contributed so generous, you know, with such generosity. We want to put them at the top of the invitation. We feel very confident about it. It's a it's a beautiful place to be, and I just think that's wonderful. Um, what I'm bummed about is that the stationer is is trying to to, to thwart the efforts here. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Dance first note in our in our show notes says this is your wedding so the wording's up to you and technically that's really true um even though there are a lot of standards i'll say there's there are there are a lot of standards for how you could write your wedding invitation i think even in the 20th edition we have three different samples one that's very traditional one that's a little more modern and one that's sort of the casual modern version and so there's a a lot to work with within this world of wedding invitations and when i hear the traditional nature of things that seem to be coming out along with the focus on really wanting to include the groom's parents. I start to think about constructions where you see all four parents listed at the top of the invitation. And while traditionally you would put the bride's parents first, if we're dealing with a bride and groom couple, I think in this particular circumstance, because the bride's uh, parents are asking for it, that it's perfectly fine to have the groom's parents up on top. I don't actually understand the jarringness that the stationer is talking about or that the designer is talking about in this case. I think if I was to say something was jarring, it might be more so that that in the construction that was first suggested to the, the stationer, the designer, that it was the son of, that we were using that that kind of construction, the son of and the daughter of, and you were really switching the places of the bride and the groom on the invitation. And th- it's perfectly fine to do it, but it, it it often we go to that place of the bride on the wedding day, and we put we do that whole ladies first thing. It doesn't have to be that way. 
But for me, when I think about this particular setup, I like the idea of removing the son of and the daughter of type language and instead having Mr. and Mrs. Jack Roberts. So that's the groom's parents. Next line down, Mr. and Mrs. Bride's parents. And again, however they choose to do their names is totally fine. It doesn't have to be that construction of the husband's full name with the Mr. and Mrs. And then the next line would be request the honor of your presence. Then the next line is at the marriage of, and then we will put your name, the word and on the next line, and then the next line down his name, and then followed by, you know, date and place. And so I think for me, removing the son of and daughter of allows both parents to be in the hosting positions, which are those top lines. And at the same time, we are still putting the the bride first and then who the bride is marrying and then the date and place. So it might kind of get the the order of that bride and groom a little more in the traditional category, which might, again, might be what the designer is balking at in the in the previous rendition. But it would also get both sets of parents up top. And it is very common to have all sets of parents, whether it's two sets of parents or four sets of parents because there have been divorces. It's very common to have them all up there. It's a little less common to see the groom's parents' names listed at the very top, but because your parents are suggesting that, I think it's absolutely fine to run with and would not be jarring. I like the solution and I like the specificity. I, I, <laughs> I really appreciated seeing it in our show notes mapped out line by line, and it looks very similar to me to many wedding invitations that I've received, where all of the parents are listed at the top, essentially giving everybody hosting credit in some yeah. way. Yeah. And the gender question was one that interested me because mm-hmm. theoretically the idea is that you don't for many people want the gender to necessarily matter in terms of that yeah that construction but there is this thing that happens with so much of our etiquette today where there are sort of traditional ways of doing things and traditional expectations and then there's the very real and present world that we live in where individual choice and and people wanting th- to do things their own way has really been pretty accepted. It's, it's as it's you important. point out, we have a, a contemporary wedding wording in our new book, as well as a pretty casual wedding invitation wording in our new book. And a traditional wording. I mean, it's like all three, you know, <laughs> because they do need to play with each other. And I could mm-hmm. see the stationer or the designer balking a little bit saying, well, with listing the groom's parents first and then having the the daughter's parents at the bottom you're really emphasizing that the groom's parents are playing the host role and yes, that's very different true. than the very old school traditional expectation that the bride's parents paid for a wedding mm-hmm. and it might be that they're uncomfortable with it as a sort of a, a reveal that the bride's parents aren't didn't pay, paying for yeah. it or didn't contribute as much mm-hmm. and that that might be the what jarringness they find that we're seeing about yeah it. exactly yeah. no that's a really really good point and it is why i love that construction of putting all the parents at the top and having them together request the honor of the presence at the marriage and we say honor of your presence because we're in a house well you could also say the pleasure of your company um honor of your presence is usually reserved for a house of worship and presence of your company is sort of for the anywhere wedding whether that's your backyard whether that's a venue somewhere else but just not typically for a for a house of worship 
So I like the idea of getting to the place where all of these four parents are requesting either the honor or the pleasure of, of you to attend the marriage. And I, I've, I've always particularly loved that, that construction myself. Well, I'm a fan. I hope that the stationer's a fan. I hope that who's <laughs> on too. first and all of the parents are fans. <laughs> and that even if this isn't the exact way that they end up going, that it, it mm-hmm. gives you some ideas about yeah. ways to approach this that are going to work for your family. Who's on first? Thank you so much for the question. And congratulations. We hope the wedding is a smashing success. The pledge to love and cherish, to honor and obey. The pledge to share a lifetime and build a heritage for new lifetimes to come. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Our next question is cleverly titled RIP to the RSVP. Dear Lizzie and Dan, first I want to say I love listening to your show all the way from Australia. Woohoo! Though listen, I got really excited about that. <laughs> Through listening to your show, I've concluded our etiquette down here is a cross between British etiquette and that of perhaps more relaxed states in the U.S., like Texas or California. I'm even learning what tailgating parties are from your show. Ooh, that's an important one. The question I have is, have RSVPs died? I love hosting dinner parties, but I find I constantly have to follow up as to whether people are actually coming. This is particularly painful with couples, as if the couple doesn't come or tells me they can't come less than a week out, it's too late to invite another couple who I would have loved to have invited instead. And there's a big hole at the dinner table, which ruins the flow of conversation and fun. What's even worse is when people respond with something like, we'll see closer to the time, or they ask who else is coming before responding. I'm torn. Do I just stop inviting these people? Is this just the norm and no one knows how to RSVP? Many thanks, Claire from Oz. Oh, Claire from Oz, thank you for the question from the other side of the world. It's so much fun to get a question from Australia, living here in Vermont, where I was always told as a child, if I really were to start digging a hole and go straight through the planet, (laughs) I would probably come out somewhere in Australia. It's true. It's true. And we do actually have a couple trainers over in Australia, which is kind of exciting. People who've been through our, our training programs and our teachers. We sure do. And... I also like the reflection that Australian Mm -hmm. etiquette is this blend of some sort of British etiquette that was handed down, but then also it's been contemporized by the environment that it's lived in and that that might be Mm -hmm. similar to some of the Western states in in America. I I like the parallel and the thinking. (laughs) Claire, I want to start. You asked a bunch of good questions. This is what I would call a contemporary etiquette classic. And (laughs) I think that I have some clients who I am hired by pretty much to deliver the message that the RSVP is still critically important. And Mm -hmm. 
oftentimes the point of pain that has someone pick up the phone and call me as a consultant is a difficulty getting employees in a professional setting to respond to invitations, whether they're um, social events that are being organized around business or whether it's events that are actually happening on site or that are part of people's work. But people aren't as good about RSVPing these days, don't understand the expectations as well. And I want to affirm that the very last thing you ask, does anyone even know how to RSVP anymore? The answer is <laughs> there is an increasingly mm -hmm. larger and larger percentage of the population that don't have a clear set of expectations about this. So in some ways, Lizzie and I like having the opportunity to answer this question again and again and again, because it gives us a chance to go over some really important etiquette. The RSVP equips the host in many ways. It's the first role and responsibility that a guest has when they receive an invitation or when they start to play the role of guest. And the lesson I deliver in those seminars, trainings, and as a consultant is that it's okay to say yes. It's okay to say no. The most difficult thing for any host to manage on a guest mm -hmm. list is a question mark. It's the failure to RSVP that's the biggest mistake that people make. As you point out, if you get a good clean no, you can invite someone else. You can plan accordingly. You don't end up with that hole at the table. You can set a smaller table. But not knowing makes it really difficult for the host to proceed with their planning. Dan, you're reminding me of reading in the 1922 edition, Emily speaking about her dinner guest lists and the way you would pick people and that you did have a certain amount of people who were kind of on reserve as your seat fillers so that if you found out someone couldn't make it, you would then go almost like a B-list. Like this is almost Emily Posed advocating a B-list, but it's your more trusted friends, your, your more reliables who both wouldn't be offended that they weren't first invited and would be willing to show up in a pinch to help fill a seat. But that idea of filling a seat being important or that having the table be full for a dinner party being important – while it's not something we put a ton of emphasis on now, it was incredibly normal in Emily's day, especially in those more high society uh, uh, dinner parties and events. And I just I find it interesting to hear that almost like the desire for that kind of backup or your tried and true guest list that you could always call upon in a pinch to fill a seat for you. Well, it would be phenomenal if we could wave that etiquette magic wand that we talk about and correct all mm -hmm. guest behavior. Unfortunately, as a host, that's not a possibility. So we have to switch our focus to think about what you can do as a host when you're confronted with the reality of this situation. And within the question that you ask, I see that you're already doing the thing that would be our first piece of advice, which is that mm -hmm. you can follow up on your invitation if you don't hear back from someone in a reasonable amount of time. What's a reasonable amount of time? Well, if there's a, a stated RSVP date, that would be one. <laughs> That's a good one. For something like a dinner party that you're inviting someone to a couple weeks out, you can give it a few days. But when you start to approach the deadlines where you need to have things set for your planning, that's a good informal or not stated deadline where it's perfectly acceptable for you to reach out and touch base with people. Ask them if they know, if they've received the invitation, if they are planning on coming. And that's got to be a, a soft ask, but it's also entirely appropriate 
particularly because you haven't heard anything from them, you can't even be absolutely certain that the invitation has arrived. So you've got some latitude as a host to reach out, touch base, and find out what your guests are thinking. Dan, this was the point where I did wonder, and we don't have information from from Claire to to fill it in, but depending on how early she's sending these invitations, it it could be that if if she sends the invitation four weeks ahead of the dinner party and checks in at the three week ahead of the dinner party mark, that might feel too soon for some people to make that decision. I'd like to think we could all feel confident making plans three weeks ahead of time, but I know that with some people's schedules, it just it's it's more of a the, the week of or the week before is when they'll often know if they're available or not, and it it might just be worth saying that. You don't want to have your follow-up be too close to when you issued the invitation because pe- people might just need a little bit more time. It's a good reminder. And and it's funny in my mind as I was thinking about the using your own need to prepare as the sort of second deadline. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I was thinking that was about a week, week and a half out. Yeah. And it I was c- pushing it, it out to yeah. that week and a half, maybe to two, if you're thinking about inviting someone else and you want to give them the opportunity to say yes. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. If I were to start to say three weeks out, in my own mind, that starts to feel pushy. I probably don't really need to have all the details for a dinner party set as a host three weeks out. Mm-hmm. So it might start to feel a little bit over eager, let's say, to to be pursuing guests for a firm commitment at that point. You know, Dan, it could be for a more casual dinner party that that's you just need a, a couple days before the party to know, you know, whether mm-hmm. someone's coming it or not. It could be shorter. Absolutely. It could be shorter. But what I what I like is the idea of really giving hosts that time. So if I check in at the week and a half mark and the guest still isn't ready to commit, they give me that that line of we'll see closer to the time. Yep. That's when it's okay to say actually I I really need to know by the the 31st or but give it a date. It's okay for you to do it and you could probably deliver it in a better way than I just did. But it's okay to give a specific date if in your follow up and that's whether you've given already an RSVP date and now you're following up and checking in on it because that date has passed it's okay for you to present them with a final final date and it's also okay to say oh i'm so sorry i really do need an answer by and i would be willing to give someone another 24 48 hours if i had that time to be able to to do it for this kind of a conversation where they're saying, oh, well, I'll let you know closer to the date. Actually, I I am doing a bunch of prep for this particular dinner party, and I could really use an answer by this point. And if you can't, that's okay. We could just do a dinner party another time. And I think that helps to get people in the zone of, oh, someone's trying to coordinate a whole bunch of stuff, and Mm -hmm. they actually need an answer from me. And no, it's not something I can just you know, decide upon when I feel like it at the time of the event, you know? Absolutely. What's a little bit nice about not getting the RSVP in a timely manner is in some <laughs> ways it dials the formality back a little bit. It, 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 to me, it puts the planning more in that casual or more casual space where mm. we're I'm coordinating with friends and it might work, it might not work, but there, there there's some back and forth that mm-hmm. starts to be part of getting everybody there for a more which casual, is, I think, the way yeah, a lot of successful gathering happens these days because people aren't as 
familiar with and successful at using more traditional expectations to get it to happen. Mm -hmm. So even if you've sent an invitation that's well-structured and has all the information someone would need to respond in good time and give you a good answer, if they're not dancing that dance with you, in some ways it gives you the permission to say, hey, do you know the steps to this dance? Let me show you <laughs> or let me help. And when you approach it with that spirit of I'm, I'm, I'm trying to facilitate this, I'm trying to get this to happen. And I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm looking to share information and get information so that we can figure out if this is going to work. Mm -hmm. I think that you're likely to get a good answer and ideally get that guest list closer to the one that you want, closer to the one that you're hoping for in the beginning. For the question of when people ask who the other guests are before they've responded, it's definitely a rude thing to do. It's a, and and pending safety, which usually is more of an issue at a at a bigger event like a wedding where maybe a couple who has divorced is friends of both are friends of the couple getting married and the couple is going to invite both of them. It's nice to have that heads up. And then each part of the divorced couple can make a decision about whether or not they attend, that sort of thing. Um, so there is a little bit of room for it. But pending very serious situations, and I'm talking very serious, for the most part, nobody should be asking who are the other guests to judge whether or not they are going to attend something. I think there's a casual version of this where it's just like, oh, you know, is it going to be all the girls or is it going to be, you know, all the couples yeah. from this particular group that we're all a part of? Dan, I think of um, I think of Pooja's group of friends from college that you all do that weekend with where it's like there's kind of a set crew that comes for that, you know, and yeah. they might all ask like, oh, is everyone from the crew coming? That kind of a thing. But mm -hmm. aside from that, if people are saying, well, who's going to be there? That's where you as a host do not actually have to answer. And I have tracked my brain audience for a good sample script for this. And I'm coming up a little short. The closest thing I've been able to come up with so far, so I'm soliciting suggestions here, is something like, well, would it make a difference to whether or not you attend? In other words, question the question with a question, you know? It's not, I don't think, the most polite way to respond to it, but it's it's the best thing I've been able to come up with of, of just sort of like a... I'm, I'm going to put you a little on the spot here. Why do you need to know that to make an answer to whether or not you're going to come? It's not what you really want to do, but it does get people thinking, oh, yeah, why Why am I doing this? It's, oh, oh shoot, maybe I've got a little broccoli on the tooth here, you know? Mm -hmm. A little bit like you, I would have a hard time with a sample script if I actually knew who else was coming. I right. instantly want to go to the... I'm not sure yet. No one RSVP. pleasant place of, <laughs> oh, I'm still, I'm still working it out, still, still checking off the boxes or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I think that the Another reality, good option, by the way, Dan. I, I like how that sounds. The reality for me is that the, the closest I come to this is exactly the kind of situation you mentioned, where it's somebody that's part of a social group that is used to getting together, and they're curious if this is a continuation of that social exchange. Oh, is this part of the the psychology group or is this part of the women's group or the is this the cornell crew or whatever whatever it might be <laughs> totally and as a host i'm actually not uncomfortable sharing that oh yeah definitely you know right. we expect to hear from all of them or i expect all of them or the usual crew yeah i think if the question was more pointed is so and so gonna be there with either the the implication that the yes, they're going to be there means I want to come or yes, they're going to be there means I 
don't want to come mm-hmm. would start to give me pause. And you're right. It's a difficult sample script to come up with. I'd rather not share that with you. If you do know the answer to that. It's a tough thing to say. Like, it's a very tough, even that was one of the ones I had tried, like, oh, I'm not comfortable sharing the guest list. And that felt, it felt somehow stodgy and stiff and cold. And it, I don't know, it was very hard. So audience, we would love any suggestions or any successful versions of a sample script that you have used when this question has come your way. That would be really, really fantastic. Claire from Oz, there is clearly a lot to discuss when it comes to RSVPs and the lack of RSVPing going on out there. We truly thank you for your question, and we hope that our answer helps. And for keeping the art of the dinner party alive. Social courtesy does pay, doesn't it? Thanks. Our next question is titled Garage Full of Goods. Hello, awesome etiquette team. I recently moved into a new house thanks to some of my boyfriend's co-workers who set us up in their old place. I'm super grateful for their help in securing this place, especially because the market where we live is so tight with seasonal workers coming to town ahead of the summer. But because we know them, they are taking their time getting their stuff out of the house. The garage is still full of tires and tools and things that have been there for about a month. I don't want to be pushy about asking them to take it back because they were so helpful, but it is sort of keeping us from using the garage for our cars. Could you provide me with a sample script for this situation? Thanks, Dana. Dana, I can feel the the trickiness of this one where it's like you want to balance your gratitude of having these folks help you get this place and at the same time you'd like to be able to use it it in its full capacity that you're paying for. And I don't know if the previous owners own this place or if we're just taking over a lease from, you know, one person moves out. Oh, we're moving out. You should talk to our landlord about picking up the lease once we leave. You know, I don't know which it is, but I do think this is one that you, you can approach. And it's probably just a simple call to inquire about scheduling a time to finish getting the stuff out of the garage. So it, it might be something like, you know, oh, Jim, we are so grateful to be staying here. The house has been so fantastic. We are hoping to start getting to use the garage soon, wondering if we could set up a date and make plans to to get the rest of the items out of it. Happy to help is always a nice thing to add if you are or you can. Mm-hmm. But I think just a- applying that kind of like. I got to organize and schedule this, you know, because it's not happening just naturally on its own. I think calling and letting someone know that you're both eager to set a time when you'll know when this garage will be available to you and you can help them if you can get the things out of it. That I, I think that would be perfectly fine. And, and I would expect someone on the other end to be like, oh, gosh, yeah, sorry. I thought I was going to get to it two weeks ago and then last week we got sick or you know what I mean like just things happen that can push it off and you kind of forget how long it's really been and a month I think you're well within your right to start asking about when you can expect for things to be gone I liked your idea of asking when it would work for them and asking them to let you know when it would work for them I think that's a great construct and if the time that it works for them is a date that's months out into the future. (laughs) 
good thought, it Dan. It gives you a chance to say things like, well, are there things that I could do? Could I maybe box some stuff up and move it to the side? Could I put the tires outside under a tarp? And then they could reply, oh, da, 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 yes, that would work. That wouldn't work. Maybe I could just come get the tools. Yeah, maybe the, I could the, the discussion develops there. from there. But I, I, I think as a way to raise it, Lizzie, I think those are the two things that you you're really want to balance. The idea that you're not demanding or pushing or saying it has to happen by X, Y, or Z. And at the same time, you're letting them know that you're you're wanting to know when it's going to be because mm -hmm. that forces someone into some concrete thinking about what exactly it is they're capable and, and willing to do. One little added suggestion that can sometimes help this, and I know these were boyfriends, coworkers, so you might not be close enough to be socializing with them, but if you are, so like if, if having a dinner together or something is not out of the realm of possibility or, or out of the norm for you all, I think it is always nice to, and you don't have to tack them together. It doesn't have to be like, come on over and then we'll do dinner, even though that kind of does sound nice. I think it is nice to, when you've had to do kind of businessy tying up loose end things with someone to also schedule something that's purely social with them so that it's not just kind of about the brass tacks, but it's about, you know, the, the relationship as a whole. And that can be a little difficult when you've, when you've just moved and you're trying to get settled in and stuff, but it, it sounds like a month in, you know, you might be able to have that opportunity to, to also stoke the social fires with these folks as well, which could be a, a good thing. I think that's a nice idea. You can hear in the question how appreciative Dana is to have the place and to have, yeah. to have found a place to live. And you don't want that message to get lost in sort of a final, hey, let's get your stuff out of the garage moment and yeah. <laughs> maybe looking for a, a purely uh, social moment or, or a time to really focus on that gratitude is a great way to, to actually cap this whole exchange. Dana, thank you so much for the question, and we hope you continue to love your new space. We like to keep the things that we own as clean as we can. That's why Dan is cleaning his bike. It looks much better now. But his hands don't. Now they need cleaning. This next question is titled Tender Topic. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you for reading my email. I love the podcast and your endless grace and good advice has kept me company on many commutes, long runs and road trips. My family received the unfortunate news that my brother's wedding has been called off. The damage to the relationship is beyond repair. Right now, no one outside the family is aware of the incident that caused the break. We are grieving privately and tending to my brother's broken heart. Eventually, the news must come out. Could you please share sample language for when extended family, friends, and acquaintances inevitably asked, what happened? I don't want to expose my brother's personal life or speak ill of a woman I was ready to call my sister. If there's any protocol to follow when canceling an event of this nature, I'd appreciate you sharing more about that as well. Thank you. Canceled engagement. This is a tough one. Oh, canceled engagement. I'm so sorry to hear about this very difficult situation that your family is dealing with. I can only imagine what your mm -hmm. brother must feel like. That kind of heartbreak can really be devastating. And yeah. at the same time, you're, I think, really wise to be thinking ahead and thinking about how you handle canceling the wedding and talking to people about 
about why that happened because people will mm -hmm. be curious. People will wonder and will want to know and will probably be asking about it. Mm -hmm. From a very etiquette perspective, I think the, the first thing that it's important to say is that you want to get the cancellation notice out as soon as you're certain that the wedding mm -hmm. is going to be canceled. Mm -hmm. And you can think of that as something that's just very informational. It doesn't need mm -hmm. to be about the rightfully difficult emotional situation that many people are in. It can just be about canceling the wedding. And that is important for guests to know. And it also is certain and, and concrete and maybe will help the family move mm -hmm. on or start to process and deal as well. It'll feel less like a, a scary thing that's in the future and something that's just been done. And now we can deal with some of those emotions and continue to move through that in whatever, whatever way that's going to happen. The way we typically do that is sending a card to all of the guests who've been invited to the wedding. And it very simply says, whether it starts with regrettably or not, it often says a very clear and simple line of the wedding of so-and-so on such and such date will no longer take place. And it's, it's very clean and simple. And I would be prepared once you send those to have asked your brother what he's comfortable sharing about the circumstance. And depending on where he's at, he may be feeling very private, in which case it's a, you know, I don't want you to share anything about it. Just let people know it's not going to happen and that we are both going to move forward with other relationships after this. Or, you know, not because there are other relationships immediately present to move forward with, but just that we are not going to to try and reconcile. The harder, I think, sometimes is actually when the person who's been hurt is willing to to spread whatever it is and and really sort of put the blame out there or tell the whole story that sort of thing as canceled engagement writes to us this person was supposed to be my sister i don't really want to be speaking ill of her and i think that that's a fair thing for even if your brother is screaming you know to the hilltops about what his fiance did to break up the the engagement you don't have to do that as well you can instead say something like you know unfortunately what occurred between them really wasn't fixable and and so the marriage won't take place and i i wish her well i'm sad she won't be joining the family but i understand why and leaving it there is perfectly fine you don't you don't have to go into that smear campaign as well and in a lot of ways the tone with which you deliver whatever you say is yeah. going to be a big part of how it's received if you seem devastated and distraught whatever the message is it's likely to if not raise the curiosity in the other person, definitely create an impression mm -hmm. for them. And I think having a, a sample script like the one Lizzie just mentioned in your pocket and being ready both with the words and with a spirit of I'm, I'm sharing the information, but it's personal. So I'm not sharing too much about it either with what I'm telling you or with the, the tone that I deliver it with. Mm -hmm. is a big part of that message being received as just factual information by the person who's legitimately curious. It's it's not an unreasonable question for someone to have in their mind if they've been invited to a wedding and then it's been canceled, why it was canceled. Mm -hmm. But it's also very reasonable for the response to that to be, it's, it's a little too personal to really get into the details on. Mm -hmm. 
really wish that it could have gone forward. Wish I could have seen you there or something like that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to happen. Puts a, a, a period on that sentence, puts a code on it that says, mm-hmm. I, it's really not up to me to tell you. And the emotional stakes aren't so high that you should continue to ask or wonder <laughs> even. Yeah. Yeah. Canceled engagement. We're so sorry to hear about this very difficult situation that your family's dealing with. We applaud you in your efforts to support your brother through this difficult time and hope that our advice helps. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesome etiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember, use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you love Awesome Etiquette, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesomeetiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content, plus live calls, and we know you'll feel great helping to keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment, where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today, we have feedback from Haley on episode 386. Dear Lizzie, Daniel, and the Awesome Etiquette team, thank you for your wonderful podcast. I recently discovered Awesome Etiquette and have found your perspectives to be wonderfully helpful, especially in my work as a wedding calligrapher and stationer. After listening to your most recent episode, I had one thought to add on the topic of addressing poor hygiene with a friend, coworker, or family member. That thought is this. Poor hygiene is often associated with depression or other mental health challenges. In fact, it is often the first warning sign of conditions that may be serious or even life-threatening. I certainly am not making any assumptions about the individual from the original segment. But I think listeners looking to apply your wonderful advice would benefit from this perspective. Poor hygiene is a difficult thing to discuss, but showing your concern and support might even save a life. I think being aware of this issue would help anyone prepare for a tough conversation with even more grace and empathy. Thank you again for all you do. Warm regards, Haley. Haley, thank you so much for your feedback. It's an excellent point, and I I love the idea that the concern could actually have a lot more meaning behind it than, than we might ever realize. Thank you so much for your feedback. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next question, feedback, or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to talk about butter at the table. Dan, this oh, was in table manners. I know. I know. Table manners. Like, who would have thought on an etiquette show? 
But I say cute because I love the name. One of our listeners wrote in under the the pseudonym Butterfingers, and I just loved that so much, and had about five questions about butter at the dining table. And so Bridget sent it to us saying, this would make a great postscript, and I think she's absolutely right. So Butterfingers writes about a number of different aspects of butter at the table. And I figured, why not? Let's just take it away. (laughs) Can I serve it up to you? (laughs) Slice it or roll it. I'm ready. (laughs) Let's begin. Which is the more formal way to serve butter? On a small plate, in a buttered dish, covered or uncovered, or in some other specialty serveware? So... That You really have two options for butter at the table. You could have a butter dish that you pass around, and whether that's a small bowl that has balled butter in it, or whether it is a, a small plate that has, as my family does at Thanksgiving, uh, butter turkeys on it, which used to be butter ducks, or whether you serve pats or those same balls or shaped butter on the actual butter plate at each setting is another option. So you kind of have a couple options for for how you might serve it to pass butter around the table. But you also have the option of just giving everyone their individual butter, which also sometimes happens with the salt and pepper. I think one of my favorite things is when I get my oh, own butter. Yes. And oftentimes when it's in a, a little it dish is. and it's soft, <laughs> so it's just like I've got a little miniature bowl of butter there for me to do every and anything I want with it. Within regard to good table manners, yes. But I, li- I, I, I also like the idea of having individual servings at each place. I think that could be really nice also. You're reminding me that I didn't think of the whipped butter that is like my absolute favorite when I'm usually experienced at dining out. But it's it's like, oh, that is just when you get your own little ramekin of that and you don't have to share it with anybody. That is exciting. Even though I like to share when when you, Pooj, and I go out to dinner, I, I definitely appreciate that whipped butter is just so, so good. As far as the formality goes, the only thing I think I would really caution against is labels at the table. Mm-hmm. A butter presentation that looks like the kind of butter presentation that would be on your countertop. So mm-hmm. like a stick of butter that has been partially used or something like that, right. I think is something that you would want to avoid in in any of your more formal settings. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, this gets into that question of covered or uncovered. A lot of mm-hmm. people have countertop butter dishes that have a cover because it protects the butter. You can leave it out where it stays at room temperature, but then that cover protects it. Mm -hmm. And it's also sometimes useful to have a cover on the butter at the table for the same reason. So Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily that the butter is covered or uncovered at the table that makes it more formal or less formal. But Mm -hmm. if the cover at the table looks like the cover from the counter or sort of a a bigger pot or a bigger stick. I think that starts to get where it feels less formal. It feels more like I've brought the butter from the counter to the table as opposed to having a a presentation to it. Like a serving dish with like a top that maybe maybe matches the set around it or something. Exactly. And and that cover, you might not need it for the briefer time that you're going to be using the butter at the table. Ideally, the, the table is a relatively clean space, but mm-hmm. that protection can also be nice. Keep the butter protected. 
<laughs> Lots of ways to, to serve butter at the table. What's our second question, Dan? At a table with 10 to 12 diners, would it make sense to have two or more butter dishes to avoid having to pass the butter up and down the entire length <laughs> of the table? This is where logistics are so fun with etiquette because I say yes, absolutely. If you are able to put the butter in dishes to be passed that, that look at least like they go together or even if you have a mismatched setting that that's still like a coordinated mismatching that's happening, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think it, it's absolutely fine. I think it makes a lot of sense to, to have, um, a couple of plates that could move around the table. Um, or as we said before, you could choose to give everyone their own individual butter. I don't think I could wait for 10 people to butter their bread before I got my butter. That would You'd be too be hoping long. that the butter was set, was placed near you naturally, and if not, that you're in the like downswing of the passing as opposed to like being up up end of it. Yes. <laughs> Next question: mm -hmm. Is the butter knife to be passed along with the butter? If the butter's in a rectangular butter dish, this seems like it would be awkward. Hmm. Interesting. So we technically have two different butter knives at the table. There's the butter knife that travels with any butter that is communal butter for the table to be passed around. And then there is your own butter knife that is on your bread plate. Excuse me. I keep wanting to call it the butter plate, but it's the bread plate. And if uh, your host doesn't have that particular knife, then you're using your dinner knife, whether that's your, your entree or your appetizer, whichever's out there, as your buttering knife. But you always, always, if there is past butter, you have something to be removing it from the butter plate or bowl with. And that item stays with the butter plate or bowl. It does. It doesn't leave it. It's it's there. Sometimes you'd see tongs for like the the little balled butter. Mm -hmm. So that's a definite yes. The butter. <laughs> Sorry, passes <laughs> with the given butter. Such a simpler answer, but I was so thinking about the two knives. Yes, <laughs> the butter knife is passed with the butter, and it stays with the butter. <laughs> Next question. Is the butter knife meant to rest on the butter dish between uses? Yes, in both cases. Your butter knife is supposed to rest on your bread plate in between uses. And when the butter is not being passed or someone isn't taking, you know, a little slab from it, that knife is often set on the side of whatever the container the butter is in. And it does raise that question. It, it's nice if that butter serving utensil, whether it's the tongs or the butter knife that goes with the butter, mm -hmm. if there's a way to keep track of it, if there is a place that yes. it sits, oftentimes in the bowl, or because you don't want to put it necessarily back down on the table once yeah, it's been in the butter. You definitely don't want to put it on the table. Yeah. But it, and it's one of the reasons why a little butter serving ware can oftentimes be nice. It can help deal with that. You're not trying to make use of a knife that doesn't fit in the little butter serving dish to both pass with it and then stay with it when it's not being passed. Exactly. And finally, Lizzie, at breakfast, mm -hmm. is it correct <laughs> to serve toast unbuttered, for example, in a toast rack or already buttered? Either, either, either. I think it's nice to serve it unbuttered so that people have the option. Me but too. I will say, well, here's the only other thing, though, is that I have never 
never in my life turned down already buttered bread because it was likely buttered while the bread was still warm. So it's really soaked in. And now it's like super good. I mean, it's just saturated with the butter. I may even put a little more butter on it. But then I can put my jelly on it. And it's like the, you know, it's just that bread is now soaked. So I love when I receive already buttered bread. I know that might not be everybody's cup of tea. And so I, I wouldn't say it's a must do. But I think either way would be perfectly happy. If anybody is serving me breakfast, I am grateful. So I may not be the right answer for this. Well, and, and toast in a toast rack. How lovely, right? I want that. I now would like to go buy a toast rack. So Lizzie Bose, we can't leave this postscript without me sharing a little something personal with the awesome etiquette audience. Oh, interesting. What have you got? Which is that I am someone who loves butter. And the reason I would want my toast delivered unbuttered is that I would trust myself to put the appropriately, ridiculously too much amount of butter on the toast that I would want. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I had my butter uh, passion well identified and locked down in my (laughs) adulthood. And then I met and talked with you about butter. And you taught me... (laughs) About how lovely the unsalted sweet cream butter can be. And I love it. Now I have a, a, a real affinity for two kinds of butter. You've actually increased my enjoyment of butter dramatically <laughs> by sharing your love of unsalted butter. And I love salt. So I always thought that I would just love salted butter more. And now I love them both. So thank you for sharing that with me. And I just I couldn't let a postscript about butter go by without sharing that with our awesome etiquette audience. Because if there's no one that's ever thought about the wonders of delicious unsalted sweet, sweet cream butter cream, unsalted butter i think it's worth a try <laughs> it is amazing i will say try it on a really good french bread that doesn't like I, I, sourdough has its place in the world but a nice beautiful baguette something like that with just that fresh unsalted sweet cream butter sometimes really cold even oh my goodness It's so amazing. The next one will get you hooked on, Dan, which I'm sure you already know and love, is either maple butter or honey butter. To be continued. (laughs) Butterfingers, thank you so much for this inspired postscript. We hope we have answered all of your questions. And please, if any of you, our audience, have more questions on butter, clearly we're big fans. We would love the chance to talk more about butter at the table. One more food group was needed, dairy food, and butter, adding its flavor and food value to many foods. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. And today, Dan has a salute from Alana. Hello. I would like to offer an etiquette salute to my daughter who did a wonderful job on her birthday thank you notes. I was particularly impressed with a note she wrote to her aunt and uncle who sent her a check. Mm. I remember a recent question on the show about how to handle thank you notes for gifts of cash, since these can be a little tricky. Best, Alana in Minneapolis. Oh, Alana, that's so sweet. Dan, I can imagine you in the future, like being proud of the girls and well, and, and William now. <laughs> as a, as I know, a, as you got to get used to that, notes. right? <laughs> I know, right? Can't just say the girls anymore. But no, I think it is such a proud parent moment. And it, it's lovely to see 
young people finding their voice with etiquette and, and little details of etiquette, you know? It really is. Alana, thank you so much for sharing. I'll tell you, I have a little thank you note factory going at the house right now. <laughs> so I, 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 I so appreciate this note. I'm taking it as inspiration to, um, to go straight home and dive back in. <laughs> thank you so much for the salute. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media if you participate there. You can send us your next question, feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member of the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It does help our show ranking, which helps more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget.